Welcome to the Neon Noise Podcast, your home for learning ways to attract more traffic to your website, generate more leads, convert more leads into customers, and build stronger relationships with your customers. And now, your hosts, Justin Johnson and Ken Franzen. Hey, 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 Neon Noise Nation. Welcome to the Neon Noise Podcast, where we decode marketing and sales topics to help you grow your business. I am Justin Johnson, and with me, I have my co-host, Mr. Ken Franzen. Ken, what's going on with you today? All is well, Justin. How are things going with you? Everything is fantastic. I am excited to talk with our featured guest today. He has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to marketing. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Phil Kotler. He is the S.C. Johnson & Son Professor of International Marketing at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Kellogg was voted the best business school for six years in Business Week's survey of U.S. business schools. Phil is the author of 57 marketing-related books and has published over 150 articles in leading journals, several of which have received Best Article Awards. He has consulted for such companies as IBM, General Electric, AT&T, Honeywell, Bank of America, Merrick, and others in areas of marketing strategy and planning, marketing organization, and international marketing. Mr. Phil... It is exciting to have you here today. Welcome to Neon Noise. Yes, uh, happy to be here. Um, and I enjoy podcasting because uh, they allow a lot of people driving their cars or at home to hear some thoughts about subjects they're interested in. Absolutely. Well, you you have a an awful lot that you've been involved with in the marketing world. Do me a favor and uh, fill in the gaps on anything that I may have missed and share with us a little bit about your background. Uh, yes, well, I got into um, economics originally and got my PhD degree, so I am an economist, but I was trained with classical economics, and I wasn't very happy about it because people just don't make decisions about buying cars or anything else by a process of maximizing their utility function. I know that's good for mathematical analysis, but that isn't how you decide whether you want to buy a car or which car. So I was always more behaviorally interested rather than classically interested in economics. I want to really I wanted to really understand how buyers and sellers actually make their decisions. And, and so I basically uh, have been very excited about a new development in economics, which is called behavioral economics which tries to explain how people actually are motivated buy and sell things. And by the way, it happens to be the subject of marketing for the last hundred years. Marketing has always been about trying to explain the uh, decision-making process, how ads may influence you, how price may influence you, and so on. So uh, when I um, started Northwestern in 1962, teaching at the Kellogg School, I was given a choice. Do I want to teach classical economics uh, in the form of micro or macro economics, or would I like to teach marketing? And I said, I would like to teach marketing because that's about the real world. That's about the real marketplace, not the theoretical <laughs> marketplace. And so I, um, and, and in 1967, I ended up publishing my book called Marketing Management. It was a risk. It was a risk because it differed from a lot of the other marketing textbooks. The earlier books 
talked about things descriptively, like, hey, wholesaler does this, and the advertising does that, a salesman has five uh, things that he must do, etc. It was all sort of prescriptive and descriptive, but it was not analytical. It wasn't really based on research findings. So my book on marketing management wanted to be built on a real good logic of psychology, logic of economic theory, uh, some mathematics, and some organizational theory. And it would either be a big failure or a big success. Well, it turns out that the other people surprised it was a very big success because that book has continued as a guide to business people, small business people, middle, medium business people, uh, and big company business people for ever since 1967. In fact, it's in the 15th edition going on the 16th edition and, and so on. Now, you might ask the question, what, what has changed in marketing? Um, why write an edition every three years? I mean, if this was really the subject called geometry, started 2,000 years ago, the book would look the same. Geometry doesn't change, but the marketplace keeps changing. Mm-hmm. There's been an incredible amount of change. There are a few things that haven't changed, and that is we say as marketers, you must be customer-centered. You have to define what target market you're going after. Understand it fully and decide to serve the interests and the benefits and the values of that customer group. That hasn't changed. Uh, We've added a couple of things. We also should consider the other stakeholders. We should not ignore our employees and their interests. We should not ignore our suppliers or our distributors. In other words, great marketing is going to be stakeholder marketing and not only investor-oriented marketing. You know, the classical economist said everything has to do with um, making profits for the owners of the firm. But we think that's short-sighted, that the firm that makes the most profits benefits all the groups working together to make that firm successful. So that uh, is, is just a little bit on my philosophy. That's great. Phil, you bring up an interesting point there in, in with stakeholder marketing, can you, can you maybe dive into that topic just a little bit more on, on what you mean with, uh, you know, getting the employees and the vendors involved? Okay. In the old days, um, companies would, uh, find a market price for employees, for example. Uh, in other words, you could easily get a new employee for X dollars, uh, an hour. Uh, so they went cheap on that. And they got a very average employees. And imagine a hotel that wants to be a fine hotel and that decided to pay the, the, the lowest price necessary to get someone to be at the front desk and someone to clean the rooms. You know, those people will behave very listlessly, unenthusiastically. Whether they even greet the guests enthusiastically is a question. So we know that if you pay more to employees, they feel more involved with the firm. And if you always go for the cheapest suppliers, your products will break down more often. Uh, so the logic is 
if you when you 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 were trying to be a brand that had some meaning that says it promises to make the best car or the best uh, uh, detergent or whatever you've got to reward all the actors that got together to make that possible and you might say but isn't your cost higher yes your cost is higher but you have much more many more uh, loyal customers who come back and in fact if if that car was a terrific car in the best case they become advocates they are telling they are doing your advertising for you they're telling others how great a car it is so don't go cheap with your other stakeholders i like that that uh, that makes sense i think there's i mean countless times i think there's been examples of companies you know uh, even today, operating in modern times, even points uh, in history where that was the case that uh, proves the value in what you just stated. Yes, and I hope it's changing broadly because, yes, you will always find some people thinking the old way as the best because the equation seems so apparent that if, you, if your costs are the least and you get so many uh, buyers, uh, you're left with more profits, but the point is that's a very naive view. Sure. At what cost is that? Uh, sure. The, uh, yeah, I mean, look. Uh, even uh, what happens is you lose a lot of your low-paid uh, workers. You have to replace them, and when you think about the trouble you've gone through in training and so on, you would have been better off getting someone who was a happy employee. By the way, there's a uh, uh, the Marriott company. Uh, it says the hotel company says that the customer is number two in their mind, not number one, uh, but in an interesting way, by getting the best employees and paying them well, they sat so satisfy the customers that the customers come back. So they really focus on hiring the best people they can. That's a unique approach considering what the norm is that the customer's number one. Right. Phil, on your website, you talk about the relationship between marketing and, and capitalism and in capitalism, you actually wrote a book uh, confronting capitalism, which is, uh, I, I, we can dive into that a little bit as well, but I'm really interested in the topic, the relationship between marketing and capitalism. Can you dive in a little bit and tell us what the relationship is here? Uh, yes. Um, you know, there's really two forms of capitalism. Capitalism without a heart and capitalism with a heart. Uh, and I'm in the second group there. But what? here's what I mean. Um, the original view was that there should be absolute freedom for the business person to set wages and, set and, and design products and market them as long as it's done always legally. And that's that's fine. Um, except um, we have some justification for regulations because what if a food producer is a little careless with the food that he's making for people? Uh, can't we just sort of nudge him a little bit and say you better have better ingredients than you've been using? So we end up with uh, FDA, who uh, you know, with some regulations for, for over not only food but medicines and safety measures and so on. So we're, we have to be in a more regulated form of capitalism, but we don't want it to strangle the business person just 
it's in the interest of protecting the customers. Now, um, the question uh, is whether it's all about making the investors rich. And that goes back to the stakeholder issue uh, that, that we really want to make all the players uh, rich. Uh, otherwise, it's a lopsided economy. So let me give you an example. Uh, right now, tax reform is in the minds of uh, all of us because um, maybe our taxes are too high uh, and, and reform is necessary. Uh, but the question is, um, will uh, lowering the taxes actually be used in the right way? For example, uh, much of the reform includes uh, a big kick up in the wealth of wealthy people. Um, it is possible that the wealthy people will set up some factories. Because I, I would wonder why they wouldn't have set up factories if there was a need for factories even before they had a lower tax rate. But let's say it is also possible for the wealthy people to um, just um, build a mansion out of it, get another airplane. Um, uh, there's a, there's a lot of when 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 firms make more money. They often, management gets higher bonuses and so on. So it's not clear that it's shared with the workers. Now, my beef on this is the following. That what, that's, the economy is going to go to the extent that there's money in the hands of the average worker. And we know that the average worker would be bankrupt if he, if he could, would not be able to pay a $400 bill if it came up suddenly that half of our workers couldn't handle a $400 bill for a medical expense or something. So we have to put more money into the pockets of our citizens in some way. Uh, certainly they have not, they're, they're still at the 1980 level of living. In real terms, their incomes have not gone up. So I don't believe in supply side thinking. I believe in demand side thinking. If we want a 3% growth rate in our economy, which we have not had, you don't do it by just putting more money in the hands of wealthy people. And uh, by the way, it's not even clear that the taxes won't go up rather than down for the middle class. Uh, there are two big, highly respected tax agencies that say that, that the present bill that's formulated is going to actually raise taxes for middle class people. So in any case, the problem is we have to, in some way, uh, figure that the economy runs well when people have money in their pockets, not just the rich. Uh, by the way, eight people in the world have a wealth that is equal to half of the world's wealth. That was shown by the Oxfam uh, people in England. So we've got a terrible distribution of income and wealth that is crippling the economy's growth and nothing that's being done by the tax reformers in the Republican administration has acknowledged the real problems. I do not think that that reform of, of the tax bill is going to generate much of a dent in our low, our low rate of growth. And as a matter of fact, they passed similar uh, suggestions in the past. The irony is that when Clinton and 
and one of the other Democrats passed a tax increase bill. We had the much better times following the increase and not caused by the increase, but maybe by the good times. So there's a lot of economic illiteracy being perpetrated on the American people. So I, as a marketing person, am so interested in getting people to have the money, the means to buy what they want to buy, and finding that they don't have the means because of the uh, bad distribution of income. That's interesting. Do you have any insights on why you think the increase in taxes would have led to stronger economic times? Well, probably because the mood was such that it it actually um, uh, was uh, allowed the politicians to convince people to accept the tax reforms on the increase side because it didn't make a dent in their in their behavior. In other words, when times are good, people are going to spend money, uh, even if they have a little less. But you you really have to go into the literature. There are economic analyses of those in the journals, and you'll. But uh, but it's a good question that you're raising. I I grant. But sure, a tax sure. decrease. There, the whole thing is who gets that decrease, and does it really put enough money in the in the hands of the uh, average uh, citizen. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to capitalism in, in, in your book, Confronting Capitalism, I think you have 14 shortcomings that you outline. Yeah. I'm and, about a number of things uh, there. Thanks for the question, because um, I do something in Chapter 2 with the income distribution issue in inequality. But I also talk about the job issue in another chapter that, I am very worried about whether the economy is going to produce enough jobs. The big change is so radical, the change toward digitalization, toward the Internet. And I've been especially thinking about stores. Are we still going to have enough retail physical outlets? Uh, You know, my wife, as an example has not gone into a store to buy anything for a long, long time. Anything she wants is on Amazon or on another online uh, merchant of dresses and purses and so on. She finds it much more easier to just buy online. And the stores are always involving a cost. I have to get in my car. I've got to drive it. I've got to park somewhere. I'm going to browse. And by the way, I probably will browse at um, the store, see what I like, and then order it for less money on Amazon. That phenomenon itself is creating what we call showrooms rather than real stores earning money. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, what, is, what is the the store I'm thinking of that where you get electronics? We call Best Buy. Best Buy, yeah. Best Buy has turned into a showroom. Everyone goes there to see the product they want, and then they order it on Amazon. Uh, but Best Buy uh, finally realized what kind of business they're in. They're not in the business of actually selling physical products. They're in the business of charging the merchants who want their 
products to be on their shelves. Samsung gets a special corner in the Best Buy store and pays rent for the use of the shelf. It, it's a, a complete transformation of what business Best Buy, Best Buy is in. It is not going to sell that much, but it's going to uh, survive with the charges it makes to all of the people who want to rent its shelf space. How sustainable of a model is that for a brick and mortar, though? I mean, if we're looking at, I mean, Best Buy has a giant footprint. They have a brand well-known throughout the nation. You just said electronics, and I, I took a stab at Best Buy and uh, felt confident I was right, and, and you you know confirmed that. Um, they have a brand. Um, but I, I, I look at some of these smaller brick and mortar uh, Main Street businesses, who are feeling this this Amazon effect? I, we I was just at a client meeting two days ago. Uh, it's a client in the seasonal business. They had three locations. They closed one last year. They're thinking about closing a second one. Uh, it it is entirely due to Amazon moving into town and offering two hour delivery for the very same products that they're providing. And they talked about people doing that very same thing, coming in using their brick and mortar as a showroom, and then leaving on the way out the door saying, no, nah, I'm just going to buy it on Amazon. And yeah. it's crushing to a small business owner. What, I mean, is, is that a model that the, the, the model you just explained for Best Buy, is that, is that a model that is uh, available or, or feasible for a small brick and mortar? Or is no. there, are there alternatives for these brick and mortars to, to take and uh, stay alive in this very transformative time that we're in. Uh, yes, that's the key question. Uh, we all want to help them to survive. Here's the first problem is we are over-merchandised in the country anyways. There are so many dress shops and so many uh, uh, places to go and buy things. You could know this by just shopping in a mall and you'll look in the, through the window and you'll see a clerk there, but no one shopping. Uh, you'll, you'll see that we are overcapacity and so on. So some of the some of the stores can't survive. Um, there are many. Uh, you know, we we've already seen this. Sears is going to collapse. We know that Pennies have terrible problems. Um, there's some uh, big big chains that are in deep deep trouble. So the answer we generally give is this: Look at your store. First of all, let's say you're a small selling with a loyal following of people who have come in to buy a women to buy your kinds of dresses clothing okay uh, make sure first of all that um, you you've gone online as well you, you may be having selling purses and a bunch of other things why why not also uh, try to be both um, store based and online based uh, secondly when they do come in make sure your people your service people are trained very professionally, very much not pushing the selling, but but understanding the customer well. Each customer being a different customer, and and make the experience more intimate. Maybe you you might want to work with the concept of of experiential marketing. Experiential marketing means uh, what brings anyone to your store. What do they expect? Can you make the experience more special in some way, um, and and so on? 
in my research for our interview today, I, I came across one of your quotes and, and I love this quote, but I want to know more about it. Your quote is the future isn't ahead of us. It has already happened. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that in, in, in maybe the marketing world for our listening audience who uh, they're always trying. They, they, they tune into the Neon Noise podcast. Uh, we try to bring things to light that are, are quote unquote cutting edge or but help them decode and understand the complexities there as best we can. But mm -hmm. to give some insight on, on maybe what we think today is the future, but you would say, nope, Ken, that's already happened or what you would look towards or recommendations you might give them to say, this is something that you should have on your radar mm -hmm. um, coming down the line. All right. Let me um, say, first of all, uh, your uh, business listeners should really consider uh, boning up on digital and, and understanding it pretty much. And that may really boil down to understanding Facebook, and um, Instagram and Pinterest and some of these other platforms as possible uh, sales tools. Uh, is that business plans, uh, goods and services? Does he have a, a blog or a site on Facebook? Uh, um, by the way, or does he has he set up a blog anyways where his thoughts is uh, you know whatever you're selling has a history has interesting items what can the business person do to make to share the intelligence the exciting world of of, of tuna fish the exciting world of uh, of a skin care products uh, a way to um, um, use online so that's one suggestion. Uh, secondly, I, I, I think that um, they have to ask the basic question. Are they offering real customer value? This is the central concept in my books. The central concept is you have to have the ability to create, communicate, and deliver real value. Now, maybe you can create value, but you haven't communicated it well. Uh, you're just not expert enough to know how to encode the words about your your product and benefit. Maybe you can encode it and you can deliver it, but you're missing the third, which is actually to deliver it so that when that I, I know where to go for it, the service is very good, it's very prompt, promises are met. So... Too many companies are just selling a common product and and doing what we call commodity marketing, which means that only the lowest price seller will win in that marketplace. They've just not done any differentiation. That's a key concept in marketing. But not just there, you can be different and irrelevant. Differentiation and relevance are the key tribal words of the marketer. And I think a lot of business people have to think about that, realize they've been coasting on a market that maybe had some growth and growth means that all, all boats rise. And now there's so many competitors, undifferentiated as they are, that unless 
you have figured out how to do the job better and cheaper. And those are the code words, by the way. Try to do both if possible. Um, or, or be so much better that you can charge much more. But the question becomes, uh, should you stay in business? Are you creating, uh, communicating and distributing relevant and superior value to your target customers? Maybe you're aiming at the wrong customers. Whatever it is, uh, it's going to be a losing battle if you are not outstanding and standing out. I couldn't agree more with that approach and just seeing that uh, the, the conversations we have so often, someone will have Justin and I come in, do an assessment on their marketing and we're Goldfish, our company is a very digital focused, uh, primarily uh, practicing inbound marketing and inbound sales services. And one of the things we identify right away is that they haven't differentiated themselves one, nor do they really understand who their target customer mm-hmm. or buyer personas are. And we have some exercises we go through with them. And it's amazing to see how excited they get once they identify this. And I just think it's a, uh, it's a lack of uh, not knowing what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's following that suit. And so many businesses are doing that. Um, and so they, they, they the commoditized marketing that you mentioned where price does become the, and if you're not the cheapest, then you're <laughs> kind of up against it, right? Yeah. I was reading a, uh, a an article by um, L. Reese, who, who's the one who started positioning and, and focusing as, as cold words, in a sense, for good marketing. And he, the article was entitled um, Marketers Without Borders. And the idea was, you know, Doctors Without Borders, they're volunteers who go to help people who need, uh, who are have health problems. So Al Reese was saying, suggesting the need for marketers without borders, guys who go around and help a company or businessman or a person um, realize that They've got a good potential, but they're not utilizing it. They're they're not uh, doing both relevance and 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 uh, 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 you know not offering uh, something that is superior. So, in a sense, you and your partner, are, you come in to a business person and you see them doing commodity marketing and not winning, and you're you're you're, you're uh, marketers without borders. I mean, you say we can help you. Uh, actually, if you were going to do it right, you should say, we just want to participate in the games that are created by our suggestions that you use. Uh, that leads me to an interesting story when uh, one, one consultant said to his, um, uh, to the company that invited him, he says, no, I don't want a fee, just want stock in your business. Uh, you know, so many shares, because I'm so convinced that I can help you differentiate and and be more relevant to your customers that your stock price will go up and i'm happy just getting some shares of your stock initially so uh, whether you're marketers without borders or what it, it just think that there's a lot of people who run businesses who 
have not understood marketing in a deep sense. Yeah. And, and for a while there, it, it's just, I think it's the confusion beyond how quickly all the, the, the new shiny objects in the marketing world that are constantly created and positioned in front of us. And, you know, we think about the, uh, the latest and greatest and newest social media platform and, um, the complexities that they present themselves in the majority of the, of us out there in the business world aren't uh, overly tech savvy, at least from what I've experienced mm-hmm. um, that is changing and continuing to change, but the comfort level there in understanding when, when marketing is getting more and more technical, uh, I think that it's easier to tune it out or um, be more intimidated by it and lose less focus. But when it really boils down to the fundamentals and understanding your customer, your buyer persona and how you differentiate yourself that probably hasn't changed a lot since you started teaching in 1962, right? Right, right. I think um, uh, we made a lot of progress, but there's still a lot of uh, people who haven't been touched by it enough. And uh, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that more of us can get the message out. But at the same time, I would like business people to uh, indulge in a little of the internet world by hiring. If, they, if their budget allows, a young person who's very much a digital native and give them a little budget and say, look, if you think you can ha- enhance our business by either identifying better customers for us that we didn't know about or sending messages that uh, on these um, platforms that we haven't been using, uh, let's see what happens. And if we've identified that there's been um, a, a, a return on investment. We'll give you twice as much money. Uh, so play around and, and you know more than we do. We, we are ignoring the tech side. You, we're hiring you to see what tech could do. Now, that sure. plays right into the hands of um, what happened at Procter & Gamble. You know that Procter & Gamble uh, was ahead of most companies in moving toward digital uh, tools and went up to about 35% for some of their brands. Uh, the budget was 35% digital and 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 65% uh, TV 30-second uh, commercial. So I was predicting 50-50 that eventually when you're going to be both selling in a store and online or something, it would be 50-50 digital and uh, the TV. However, uh, I heard recently they back to digital. Now, I'm not surprised. What happened is they found out what works and what doesn't work. They found that some digital stuff wasn't working. And I don't know if they went, cut the 35 in in half and just released the money for TV instead. But we are likely, if we don't do any digital work, we're likely not to learn and and, uh, suffer. If we do digital work, we might overdo it too. Uh, initially it may work and then we put more money and maybe we have to go back a little, but we ought to try it anyway. We ought to hire someone who can train us to think a little more technically. Sure. 
Now, Phil, you're known as the father of modern marketing and one of the greatest marketing minds uh, ever. You just published your autobiography, My Adventures in Marketing, the Autobiography of Philip Kotler. What's what's next? Uh, what are you working on now? What do you have coming down the line that has you really excited uh, as far as your work goes? Well, well thank you. Yeah, uh, the autobiography, incidentally, uh, is more than it's just 60 stories. Uh, in my my adventures in marketing, and it all started when I was asked by in Japan to write uh, a bunch of columns that their readers wanted to hear about me, and so on. And and then I added the uh, I wrote thirty, but I expanded it to sixty. And each is a short read, but I think leaving a a, a good thought uh, for someone uh, on the beach who has my book and wants to just open a book, read something, close it, open, close it. The other, what I'm working on now, is is basically the uh, the 16th edition of marketing management, because uh, new things are always happening. Um, we uh, we think that we want to slim down the number of stories. Not we're going to have lots of stories, but we want the logic of marketing to be crystal clear. Uh, our book tends to have so many stories and pictures that you lose the, 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 the tree. You see the trees, but miss the forest. So uh, that's a big, the 16th edition may have a, quite a new look in being so clear about how to handle and marketing challenges uh, and so on. We also want to make it very clear there's a big difference between um, tactics and strategy. Uh, you know, the old marketing, when you mention it, marketing to people, they say, oh, isn't that uh, sales promotion, uh, advertising, and sales force? Yes, it is. Those are, and price, yes, those are marketing kinds of things. But the CMO of today is a new animal, chief marketing officer, not the vice president of marketing, the old title. We talk about the chief marketing officer. And by that, we mean a person who not only uh, runs the marketing groups and tools, but actually is essential to the firm's growth. As we, we postulate that it's his or her job is not simply to sell more of the existing products. That's the old idea. His job is to find products that they ought to be making and selling. In other words, who else in a company is in the best position to know where to move next and expand? Well, the salespeople and the advertising people, they're very, and the consumer guys are, are so close to customers, they should be trained to recognize the trends. They should be futurists in their thinking. And the marketing department is the one that should sensitize the company not only to how to sell more of what they make, but how to make more of that will sell. And that's a new concept for the uh, the, the marketing position, we believe. Exciting. Very, very interesting. Hey, Phil, if you have one piece of parting advice for our listening audience, what would that be? Well, um, I would say uh, you might want to... Um, Connect more with the local chapter of the American Marketing Association because uh, the people belonging to these uh, marketing uh, AMA 
uh, divisions are uh, people like yourselves uh, interested in making marketing work better for you. And they audit their audiences to see what topics are missing from that are key to future and better marketing. And I would just say, uh, get connected with other marketers and you don't just stay connected to those in your type of business. I mean, an auto marketer can learn a lot from a dress marketer, uh, I'm sure. Uh, and so uh, that would be my suggestion. Get connected with uh, the community of marketers and you'll learn a lot. Beautiful. What uh, What is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you, Phil? Um, my email is uh, pcockler, with no dash or anything, p-k-o-t-l-e-r, at aol.com. I can also be looked up at pcockler.org. I enjoyed very much uh, your questions and uh, having this opportunity uh, to talk to your audience. Well, the pleasure was all ours, Phil. We thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We enjoyed the conversation today with you very much. So, Phil, Um, we will go ahead and publish all that information in the show notes, which will be available at neongoldfish.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, this is Justin, Ken and Phil signing off. Neon Noise Nation, we will see you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Neon Noise Podcast. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please subscribe, share with a friend, or write a review. We want to cover the topics you want to hear. If you have an idea for a topic you'd like Justin and Ken to cover, connect with us on Twitter at Neon Goldfish or through our website at neongoldfish.com.